You're listening to episode 29. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student. So Get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Journals Podcast, where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Mutabo here, your host. Super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. John Spence. John, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? I am absolutely ready, and I'm honored to be here with you, Davis. Thank you, John. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for more than 22 years, John has traveled upwards of 200 days a year worldwide, helping people and businesses be more successful. John is the author of seven books, a keynote speaker, a business consultant, and executive coach to numerous clients ranging from Fortune 500 firms all the way to small to medium-sized businesses around the world. I am super excited to dig into more of your story, John. Um, but uh, before we talk business, you know, I want to welcome to the show and um, could you take 30 seconds maybe just to tell us who is John outside of business John outside of business is a husband no kids uh, and I do a lot of barbecuing Uh, my wife and I are both pretty good cooks we do a lot of entertaining when I'm home Uh, and I love to fly fish Uh, whenever I go around the world and I'm someplace that's got great fishing I figure out a way to add a couple extra days on my trip so I can enjoy it. And my wife travels with me, so we get to do all that together. That's amazing. John, how, how long have you been in full-time business for yourself? Well, it's an interesting question. If you say full-time business, it's been 22 years. I did own a couple of small companies when I was working for someone else, but I've, I've been on my own completely alone for 22 years. That's a, that's a cool long time. Congratulations for that. And what are your what would you consider your core revenue pillars in your business today? My core uh, core pillars are uh, probably split evenly. About seventy percent of my business, sixty percent of my business is big keynotes to giant groups. Uh, you know, well, a couple hundred people all the way up to fifteen thousand. Uh, and then I do a lot of workshops. I'm on the road right now delivering advanced leadership, high performance teams business excellence workshops for companies across the United States uh, this month. Uh, Then I've got some coaching and strategic planning work. I do uh, facilitate maybe a dozen strategic planning retreats a year, uh, and I do a a small amount of executive coaching. I used to do a lot, but I've really cut back on that. And then finally, I've got some products, books, and I'm just now moving into online training uh, because the travel schedule means that if I'm going to increase my revenue stream, I've got to have some passive income. 
Well, that's um, you got quite a few bits uh, of um, revenue streams going, which is which is great. You know, helps you to diversify. So, so I love that. How did the journey um, as an entrepreneur start for you? Did you come out of corporate, out of um, college, or how how did it all begin for you? Well, I um, after failing out of college on the first try, I <laughs> graduated number three in the United States on the second try got hired by the Rockefellers, one of the real famous uh, families here in the United States, and became CEO of one of their uh, international organizations when I was 26. I was there. While I was there, I did buy two small businesses or invest in two small businesses and had them up and running, but really it was the, my expertise on running companies where I just stepped in and took them over sort of in the evenings and the weekends to get them back on their feet. And then I, I left there to go to work for a large strategy and training firm, uh, a global training firm, and I took over as CEO there. But two years later, uh, I ended up not enjoying what I was doing. We might go into that later. And I jumped off and became an entrepreneur and started my own training and consulting firm. And 22 years later, here I am. Mm-hmm. And how did that idea come about in terms of which which business to go into the consulting piece for you? Well, I I always enjoyed business anyways. I mean, I, I was always helping my friends with their businesses. And and really what happened is a lot of people started to ask me for help on the side. You know, can you come over here and do this? Can you come and give a talk to my business? Can you come and do a workshop for my people? Uh, and most of the work I was doing at the big firm was Fortune 100 uh, and global companies. And, well, I'll explain what happened is I had been thinking about going independent because I realized I was generating a massive amount of revenue for my employer and getting paid well, but not nearly as well as I would have if I was on my own. And I had already started to think about it, but I came back from a one-month trip to Australia, and when I returned, the owner of the business uh, asked me to go to lunch. I think I was about 34 at the time, 33. And he told me, no one your age has earned the right to have a one-month vacation. And I looked at him and I said, mm, actually, I'm going to be taking a permanent vacation from your company. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it actually happened that after I quit, a couple of the other partners quit pretty, pretty closely soon thereafter. And he went from doing about $23 million a year in revenue to about $2 million in one month, uh, which is a reflection of very poor leadership on his part and not understanding the value of the people he had working for him. So, um, so you kind of touched on this already, but how did you acquire your, I guess, your first um, customer or client, um, say, after you, wore, after, after you left your full-time job? Yeah, a um, couple things. First of all, I did have a few friends and a few things that were asking me to do stuff, but that was at extremely low rates. Uh, you know, can you do this as a favor or for free? The first three years of being an entrepreneur was, uh, as a consultant and a speaker was brutal. Um, I beat the bushes. I worked hard. I sent out emails. I sent out letters. I made phone calls. I cold called. I really, I mean, I was working 18 hours a day to try to, to scare up a little bit of business. Even though I worked for the large company, I made a promise and a vow to myself. I did not make this vow to them, but I would not work with any of the clients I worked with there. I just thought it was unfair and it was uh, unprofessional. So I walked away from all my clients and had to build a new client list. And I got very innovative. And the way that I broke through is I figured out, how do I get in front of my target clients? How do I get in front of people that 
hire speakers and trainers. So I went to a local university in Florida where I live, and I went to their uh, executive leadership program, and I told them, I will teach a half-a-day workshop for your staff on leadership. If you hate the workshop, you never have to see me again. If you love the workshop, I'd like to talk to you about doing a a series of high-level executive workshops for the executives and companies in your area. Long story made bearable, the, the class went well, and they began a John Spence week uh, about once every three months where I would go in and teach, and I ended up landing four major Fortune 500 clients from teaching those classes, which is what finally got my business off the ground, which was thankful because I was just about out of money by the time that I finally closed a couple of big deals. So so just to stay on that story, and I think that's a great story, um, were you offering these um, courses or talks for free? Well, it's, that's a great, great question. What I did when I approached the university is I said, I will give you the first class for 8 or 10 or 12 people on your staff for free. I just want to earn the right to come and teach for you. And if I do a great job, then I'm on the team. Then after that, and this was a big mistake. I made a huge mistake. Um, I signed a contract with them that said that if I landed any business from them, that we would split it 50-50. They paid for all the marketing. They paid me about $1,000 a day to do the initial training, $1,500 a day, which is a tremendously small amount of money, but back then I needed it pretty badly. Uh, and then when I landed a couple of clients, it wasn't so bad because the contracts were a few thousand or eight thousand, ten thousand bucks. Then I landed Merrill Lynch, and my initial contract with Merrill Lynch was three hundred thousand dollars. And the university said we would love one hundred and fifty thousand back. And I said, can we renegotiate? I said I, I had no idea on the face of the earth I would land a three hundred thousand dollar contract. I don't think it's fair that I give you 50% of it when I'm doing all the training. It'll be at their location. They don't even know who you are. They will never meet anybody here. I made a mistake, totally my fault. I agreed to something I shouldn't have, but I would like to renegotiate. And the university said, no, you'll send us half of the money, period. So I said, then I won't do the work. And they went, what? I said, I'll I'll just quit. I I won't work for me. And the company was Merrill Lynch. I said, I won't work for them. I'm not going to steal the business. But I refused to, this is what I was doing before, which was I was generating all the revenue and giving half or more away to somebody else. Uh, and then Stan O'Neill, the CEO of Merrill Lynch, called the university and said, we want Spence, we don't care what you got to do, renegotiate and get him here. So we renegotiated to where I gave him a normal fee of 15%, and every client I closed for the next three or four years through the university I sent him 15%, and I ended up sending him about a half a million bucks. That's an amazing story. <laughs> well, it was a huge, huge mistake in the beginning, and one I learned in a very painful way. <laughs> yeah. Now, what's the question I have in my head, John, is what were you offering Merrill Lynch for them to you know, give you that contract of 300K? I started, it's, it's great. I started off teaching negotiations there which was not a huge strength of mine, but they actually, they liked the stuff that I was teaching and they really liked my teaching style, my workshop style, and the amount of information I already had on other topics. Um, I read about 100 to 120 business books a year and I have every year since 1989. I'm a voraciously kind of trying to learn new information and bring stuff up. So they appreciated that and valued that in me. And actually when they brought me on board to start as a contractor, as a contractor, 
they put me through the Harvard Negotiation School and said, we love your stuff, we think it's great, uh, but we'd like to pump it up a little bit more. And uh, they had, they've actually brought in somebody from Harvard and sat with me for about 10 days, and I did face-to-face and online learning, and I started with negotiations. Then that branched out to leadership, communication skills, teamwork, a uh, couple of other things. And back then, the contracts were set on a per-person rate. So I got uh, $1,000 per person that sat in my classes. And I often taught two classes a day with 20, 15 to 20 people per class. So a typical day for me at Merrill Lynch was 30000 bucks, 40000 bucks a day. Huge. That's huge days, right? <laughs> huge, yeah. yeah. Um, that's amazing. That was, that was a great start. But that, that happened after, what, three years of, of kicking around and just pushing and hustling, right? Three or four years of hustling as hard as I could, doing everything I could think of to market myself, meet people, reach out. I did a lot of free speeches and a lot of free workshops, but the key was always, are the people in the audience people that could hire me? I didn't want to waste my time in front of a group that said, wow, that's really nice and helpful, but none of us can afford to hire you. So I was very laser focused. Unless I wanted to donate something to a charity or something like that, that was fine. But I kept focused, and I still do, on if I'm going to give away a free or reduced price you know, product me session, I'm going to make sure that the people in the audience have the ability to pull out their checkbook and write me a check to come and do training for their company. Hmm. How did you know that if you persevered, it was going to pay off? Well, that's great. No one's ever asked me that question. I believed in myself that if I worked hard enough and I just added enough value and told the truth that everything would work out fine. There's an old Zig Ziglar quote, and I'm not a big motivational speaker guy. I mean, I like him. But he has a great quote that I believe in very, very strongly, which is, if you just help enough other people get what they want, you'll get everything you want. And in the beginning of my career, I did everything on a handshake. Um, I signed the contract with the university, but with everybody else, even Merrill Lynch, I just said, I'll come, I'll do the best work I humanly can, I'll work as hard as I can, I'll deliver as much value as I possibly can, and if I do a great job, please send me a check. Mm. That's that's good. And how did you handle leaving corporate? Because you know you you were um, a CEO at age twenty six. And I want to I want to actually ask you how did you get ahead so quickly in your professional career? Number one, and number two, how do you then leave and start you know almost from the bottom again? Well, um, how did I get ahead so quickly? Uh, A is is you know after a rocky start in college, I really 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 got serious about my education. And part of that was when I became a, you know, an absolutely voracious reader. So I was constantly trying to learn and grow. Um, I had about an hour and a half commute to my job every day. I would listen to a book on, and back then it was tape or CD. I would listen to a book on tape or CD uh, on the way there and a different one on the way back. And in the first two and a half, three years I worked there, I listened to 700 business books, audio books, as well as reading another 100 so I, I started off doing public relations uh, for the foundation. Then I went into development, fundraising, basically sales. Then, and this was a year, you know, a year in, they changed me to development. Another year in, I basically became the right-hand man to the CEO of the company. And we were having a board of directors meeting, uh, and we had three billionaires on our board, and everyone else was worth more than $100 million. So these were some pretty... Um, Intense folks, used to success, hard drivers, and in the middle of the meeting, my boss basically had a nervous breakdown. 
He was so much pressure. They were asking him such tough questions. Uh, he couldn't handle it. So he literally got up and walked out of the meeting, and one of the billionaires turned to me and said, can you handle the meeting, son? And I said, yes, sir, I can. And I ran the rest of the meeting, uh, and they put me in as temporary CEO and brought in another CEO who also failed, put me in as temporary CEO again, and the, and the second time I quadrupled the size of the organization. Let me rephrase that. We, we, <laughs> I had a great team, a great team. We quadrupled the size of the foundation, and they came in and said, you're really, really young, you're only 26, but you've built a great team, and the company is growing and improving. It's the best it's ever been. We'll let you stick around. And I stayed for several more years until I realized that at the age of about 31, I was at the very, very top of my career in the nonprofit industry. I was the CEO of one of the most prestigious uh, family foundations in the world. So that's when I started looking around to go to, a, to another job. When I left to go to the to become CEO of the global uh, training and development firm and strategy firm, and when I made the jump there, I will tell you very clearly, and it was another one of my big business failures. I was not prepared. Uh, I hadn't thought things through. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a strategy. I had an idea that I wanted to go be an independent consultant one day, but when I came back and had that lunch with the guy that owned the company, and and he basically told me I was lazy. I refused to believe that and quit on the spot without any plan. So I woke up the next morning unemployed, <laughs> which is another word for being a consultant. Um, and I, uh, I had to start the business with no plan, no strategy, which is part of the reason that the first three or four years were so incredibly challenging is I had to hit the ground running with no no idea exactly where I was running. So a corporate executive or a prof corporate professional is speaking with you, John, after one of your events and says, I really want to do what you do or I really have this grand idea. How do I step out of corporate? What, what's your, your counsel these days? My counsel is make at least a one-year plan. Two or three would be better, but most people are impatient. Uh, start to do research in your, on your weekends and in your evenings about your business, about what you want to go into, who would your competition be? How big is the market? What is the average? You know, how much money can you make? What's the profit margin? What would you need to have in place? Who would your target customer be? In other words, I would research it and study it and get really focused on what will I need to do to succeed. Uh, number two is I would go out and talk to some potential customers, not to sell them anything, but just to ask them, what are you focused on? How do you spend money now? What, you know, who are you hiring? Why do you hire them? Again, just doing research to, to make sure that there was actually a market opportunity there. Um, although I teach strategic planning for some large companies, as an entrepreneur, I think you need to have a good strategy and a good plan, but realize it's going to change probably pretty quickly. Let me share uh, an idea with you that I think is exceedingly important for any entrepreneur that, or any corporate person that wants to become an entrepreneur. Um, I've been teaching strategy and strategic thinking at the Wharton School of Business as a guest lecturer for about 17 years. It's an executive level class, not for undergraduates. And let me boil down one of the most important things I've, I've learned in that uh, to one sort of a formula for effective strategy. So here it is. Uh, if you're going to jump ship and go into uh, business on your own, I believe you've got to have something that, that meets these criteria. And here it is. All Effective strategy is just valued differentiation multiplied by disciplined execution. Valued differentiation times disciplined execution. 
And what that means is to build a successful company, you've got to bring something that's unique, exciting, and compelling. That's a key word, compelling, to the marketplace that your target customers highly value. They're more than happy to give you $5, $50, $50,000 for without blinking. That is difficult, if not impossible, to copy that your competition would have a really hard time meeting it or beating it, uh, and then that you can execute on flawlessly. And my counsel to anyone that wants to go into any kind of business is when you can build something that meets those criteria and the money that the target uh, market will pay you is enough to be profitable, you've got a chance to be successful. Most organizations and most entrepreneurs that I know go into the marketplace without building something that's unique and compelling that the target market will happily pay for, no price pressure, that the competition can't replicate, and that they can execute on. And one other thing I'll add to this, and it's sort of off the three circles from Jim Collins' hedgehog concept. I think when I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, and the three circles are, what am I truly world-class at? And then when I say world-class, I mean truly great at. It might be whatever world you play in, your city, your state, your country. But what am I truly world-class at that I have amazing skills at? Number two, the second circle is that I'm passionate about, that I love, I'm excited, I, I get up in the morning, just can't wait to do it. And then the third circle, that, and they intertwine like the Olympic circles, is that has a strong economic driver in the marketplace, that people want to pay for that product or service. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that have the first two stages. They're really, really good at something, and they're highly passionate about it, but unfortunately, nobody wants to pay for it, and that's called a hobby. So the three things you've got to have is talent, passion, and a target market that's willing to pay a significant or a, a big enough number for your product that you can make a healthy profit. That's amazing. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing that, and that's exactly what I what I believe, and um, and I also teach. So so that's really important. But I want to bring it back to you, John. Um, how there's many speakers out there, many leadership coaches and strategic thinkers. Um, how have you differentiated your your message, which which can essentially be deemed to be quite quite the same in in, in, in certain cases? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll do two things. Let me tell you first how I figured out, well, we'll go backwards for this. Two ideas. Number one is, now that I've been doing it for a while, as I continue to grow my business and move forward, I ask my top clients why they hire me. So I tell them to tell me how I'm differentiated. So I reached out to a, you know 20 or 30 of my top clients in the world and said, why specifically did you hire me instead of all these other speakers and trainers? What are the top three or four reasons that you decided to go with me. And there was a very clear pattern. Almost all of them said the same thing. Uh, and it, it came down to a formula again. I use a lot of formulas. Research, real life, passion equals ROI. John, and here's what they tell me. John, you're the only speaker, consultant we know, that, that reads 100 books a year, studies so much, spends a You're a freak. You've got more knowledge and information than almost anyone we deal with. Real life, you've been the owner, CEO of eight companies, three of them multinational. This isn't just theory for you. You actually lived it. Uh, you know what it's like to build strategy. You know what it's like to make payroll. You understand business from the inside. Uh, number three, passion. It's obvious to see that you've dedicated your life to this. You love it, love it, love it. It comes through clearly when you work with our people. And because of those three things, we always get a high ROI when we work with you. 
So that's where I am now. How did I do it in the beginning? Uh, number one is I realized that knowledge was going to be critical to me and I would have to be insanely dedicated to lifelong learning. Uh, so that's why I read so much. I study. I go to other people's seminars. Uh, I read for an hour every morning at breakfast uh, to keep up with the news. I don't watch TV. That's one of the ways I do that. And when I get on an airplane or I read from the minute I get to the airport to the minute I get home, I don't watch TV when I travel. Uh, number two is uh, proprietary research. And it doesn't set, it isn't as hard as it sounds, but when I teach classes or I teach at Wharton or I work with a client, I ask them the same three or four questions that I ask everybody, and then I compile all that, and I've got, a, again, a long list of information that nobody else has access to because they don't have access to the people I do. Uh, number three is creating a platform uh, and getting connected to all the other top, top, top people in, in your industry. I'm Over the years, I've built up great relationships with some of the top business thought leaders in the world, some of the top professional speakers, top authors, and we share ideas, help each other, share information, refer business to each other. Uh, and then once you get to that level, your client list is really what carries the day and awards. Uh, when somebody goes to my website and they look down and say, it says Apple, IBM, Microsoft, Merrill Lynch, you know, on and on and on and on, Coca-Cola, they look at that and go, well, if all those companies hired him, he's probably pretty good. Uh, and then in the last five or six years, I've been named one of the top 100 business thought leaders in America, one of the top global leadership experts, top 500 in the world at that, a couple of other of those. You combine those two, what it does is it creates trust uh, and credibility. People look at it and say, well, if, if he works for those companies, he teaches at those universities, he's won those awards, he reads and studies that much, he's been doing it for 20 years, I can probably trust him. The hard part is it took about 15 years to build all that stuff up before it, it ran on rails. Uh, and now 99.999% of all my business comes from word of mouth. Um, I'm booking classes into 2017 and even starting to look at 2018 uh, and I don't do, at this point, I do no outbound marketing. Um, I write a blog. I guest blog. I write for a couple of magazines. Um, I write books. But really, everything comes from really, really happy clients who tell other people they should hire me. So, it, it you know, people say all the time, oh, wow, where'd you come from? I go, it's an overnight success. If you just pick one night 15 years from now, that's the night you'll be an overnight success. <laughs> Well, you, you you have just um, nailed it. You've, you've you've walked me through a whole bunch of stuff, and I've been scribbling notes here. The key thing that I wanted to ask you, um, and I've heard this, I've heard you share this uh, previously in your TED talk and that on previous um, shows that I've listened to, is how do you read um, 100 to 120 books a year? How are you doing that? Uh, a big part of it is figuring out what to say no to. It's the discipline to not waste your time on things that don't add value. I'm very clear about my values and what's most important to me. And everything I do in my life, I try to measure against those values. And lifelong learning is one of my core values. So I don't watch TV. I don't go to movies. I don't go to the mall. Um, I don't waste time on frivolous relationships or frivolous things. I still have friendships and I have a ton of fun. But I just when I do something that's just not that rewarding, I don't really enjoy it. I just don't do it anymore. Uh, and so I replaced that time with study, with uh, I've got a mastermind group, uh, with connecting with other top thought leaders around the world and learning from them. Uh, also, I read very quickly. 
Um, and, and yes, I did take some speed reading classes, but I only use that for skimming. And if I get into a book and I get 50 pages in and I haven't underlined anything, I just put the book down and I won't go any further because I figure if the, if the author can't teach me at least one new idea in the first 50 or 60 pages, I'm not willing to read another 200 to prove it. Uh, there's also a really important thing called schemata. And what schemata is, is sort of the information you've already learned that you've got filed away in your brain. And to, to give you an example, I read a little bit of physics, not only because it's really, really hard and it hurts and it's, I'm trying to expand my level of thinking. There's a thing in physics called the Heisenberg Principle of Uncertainty. Uh, and it's about uh, light, how light is either waves or particles. I won't go into it, but here's the deal. It took me about a year to figure that out. Now if I read a book that has that in it, I don't have to read it. So if I come across a story about, let's say, Jack Welsh at GE, I've read 100 stories on that. I was at GE. I met Jack Welsh. I just skipped that part of the book. So on a typical 220-page, 250-page book, I probably only read 120 pages because I've already reread the other stuff. I know the stories, or it's not worth reading, so I skim it and skip it. Now let's get to something else. Some people go, why do you read so many books on the same topics? Don't they get redundant? Yes, and that's why I like reading so many books on the same topic because the redundancy shows me the pattern. Uh, I've just finished writing a book on referrals. One of my clients asked me to write a book on how to get more referrals. So I know a fair amount about it, and I just told you that 99% of my business runs on referrals. But to, to make sure I could write a good book, I went to Amazon and bought every single book I could that had the word referrals in it, 21 books, about 9,000 pages, and I read them cover to cover twice and boiled it all down to a 100-page overview. Uh, I'm also big on taking notes, and I take my notes, read them, condense them, then reread them into my computer, make them into a document, and then I also listen back to that. So long answer, but the reason is is reading is fundamental to, to my success. It's, part, uh, it's a big, big part of my job, and it's how I add value because of the access I have to, to unique information. I appreciate that. That that is um, that is worth listening to again for anybody who is listening um, and <laughs> just just rerunning that in, in 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 you know all the all our brain circuits and just to to really figure out what works for us and how we can you know model after what what you're doing, John. That's that's totally amazing and um, and that shows a lot of tenacity and focus and discipline which you were talking about before. John, talk to me about. Execution um, and and discipline. I've heard you say before that you know only ten percent of um, businesses execute on their plans, and that is why only you know a small percentage of people are, are highly successful. What have you found in your research? Well, in my in my research and in, in frankly, Davis, a lot of interactions with companies all over the world, I would say that the single biggest problem for most businesses today is lack of execution, dis- disciplined execution, or accountability. There's a couple of things that go into this. Um, I, I, I meet a lot of really smart people. I, I, I come to companies that have amazing strategies, u- unique platforms, great products and services, but as you mentioned, very few of them actually execute effectively on their plans and their strategies. So there's a couple ways to handle this. First of all, you have to create a culture of accountability. You've got to, you've got to hire people and train people and support people and reward people for keeping their word, doing what they promised, delivering things on time, and and delivering business results. So that's a big part of who you bring on and the culture you create. 
Uh, number two, it's essential if you're going to hold people accountable, a couple of things here that you share lots and lots of information with them. Uh, people who ha don't have access to information do not have to take accountability. If they don't know, if nobody told them, if they don't have the data or the information, there's no way you can hold them accountable. So transparency and communications are critical to a culture of accountability and execution. Then the really big thing for me is, is creating a company where you have very specific, clear, measurable, and the word I like to use is binary goals. Not on everything, but on the most important stuff that has to get accomplished, has to get done. I want to set goals that are uh, no guessing, uh, no ambiguity. Uh, one of my very favorite business phrases, ambiguity breeds mediocrity. Uh, huge idea and what I see in a lot, a lot of organizations. So the reverse of that is let's get on the most important goals, get them down to binary. It's one, zero, yes, no, black, white, no guessing. What that does is it allows managers and leaders to be rigorous without being ruthless. Most people don't like to hold other people accountable because they feel like they're being mean or aggressive. Uh, and that's because there's a lot of opinion. I don't think you're doing a good job. It doesn't seem to me like you're trying hard enough. When the goals are binary, there's no seem, think, feel. There's no opinion. You either did it or you didn't. That means you can say, you know, Davis, I love you, brother. Man, we've been working together for years. I think you're an awesome guy. However... You said you were going to sell a million dollars worth of stuff this year, and you've only sold seven hundred and thirty thousand. Um, you're fantastic. Where are we going to get the other two, two, you know, two seventy? Uh, that means it's not me against you; it's me and you against the goal. Uh, I can like you, and we can be friends, but I can still hold you accountable for your performance. But without those clear, specific, measurable goals that are binary, you get a lot of tension and stress. So. And then the last thing is, is people need to be held accountable uh, publicly. I'm huge on track and post. Uh, take the most important goals in the company for everybody, put them on a dashboard, a whiteboard, in a computer system, something. Put them up where everybody sees everybody else's goals. Cut down all the trees, no place to hide. Then make it super, super, super easy for everyone to look and quickly understand where everybody else stands against their goals. And the system I use is green, yellow, red. You're either green, you're doing great, yellow, you're struggling, or red, you're in trouble. Uh, and that way, there's no guessing. But if uh, you're going to track and post and put it up, the key thing here is you've got to back it up with coaching, mentoring, training, and support. Most people think that tracking equals punishment. I'm tracking you so I can yell at you. I'm tracking you so that I can withhold bonus, withhold a promotion. And you've got to flip that around that when someone slips from green to yellow, you don't yell at them, you rush in to help them. You get them a coach, a mentor, training, support, resources, and you push them and help them and get them back up into green. And after you do that for long enough, all of a sudden everybody in the company realizes tracking equals help, not punishment. And they're more than happy to help be held accountable, execute with discipline, and let everybody see it because they're proud of the fact that they're always in green. That's great. So if if um if somebody's getting started, they're an entrepreneur, um small small teams, right? Um, um, how do they personally make sure that they they're executing and they're disciplined? How do you personally tactically make sure you know every single day you're putting in those hours of study and 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 um interaction with your network? Very very good question. The way I to do it is to do lists. Um, you know, I've, now I've run some fairly large companies. Now I have a team of four. 
Uh, my wife, who's a business, my business partner, um, an operations director, and a part-time bookkeeper. And what we do is very clear uh, communication, lots of communication. We talk about our goals and what we need to do. We've got a set of values around sense of urgency, customer service, excellence in what we deliver, fairness to a fault that we all understand and we all abide by and we all work around. And then all of us have to-do lists, which we keep on a, uh, we use Basecamp. And every single day we are tra- we track ourselves and each other on all how we're all doing against our to-do list. And the idea on the to-do list for me is prioritization, uh, figuring out what to say no to. Um, I, I get a lot of emails, a lot of things like that, but this morning I got up, I read for an hour and a half at breakfast, came in, looked at my to-do list, and started knocking off the three or four most important things I have to get done today, the things that are mission critical, and everybody else on my team does the same thing. And then every Friday, the rest of the team, because I travel so much, uh, gets together and talks about how do we do this week, what do we need to do, what do we need to do next week. So lots and lots of communication, goals in front of everybody, checklists and to-do lists in front of everybody, and everybody knows where everybody else stands on their to-do their to list, their checkpoints, our projects. Even though there's four of us, we're very focused on making sure that we stay up with everything we need to do. That's amazing. I've, I've, I've heard of, you know, to-do lists and, and um, that concept, uh, whether it be corporations. I spent the, the last six years working at GE, incidentally, so, so I've, 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 uh, I'm familiar with the people you're talking about. But um, one thing that I haven't heard is people... Um, having visibility over each other's to-do list. So I think that's that's an amazing thing that you've incorporated there. Uh, John, I want to pivot um, on that topic and talk about fear of failure, you know, going back maybe to the beginning. You know, I listen to a lot of entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, coming back out of corporate, it's, it's easy to stay in corporate. It's easy just to go and get another job and you're fearful of failing, you're fearful of losing your income. How come that didn't stop you? Well, actually, it's what drove me. <laughs> it's the exact reverse. I refuse to fail. I mean, you're going you're gonna to make mistakes. You're going to screw things up. You're going to lose projects. You're going to lose deals. You're going to lose clients. You want to minimize that, of course. Uh, and failure is a great way to figure out how never to do it again, a.k.a. don't make a contract where the other person gets 50% when they do nothing. <laughs> but um, I, have a, I have an absolute fear of failure that I always want to do well, I always want to succeed, I always want to be better, I want to be the best I can humanly be. I know I will fail, but I have tremendous faith that I will get up, work hard, figure it out, talk to people, ask for help, and move forward. Uh, I'm lucky, I think. I was born with a tremendous uh, abundance mentality, and I don't know if it's my parents or how it happened, but I I was born or, or, or... or raised with the idea that if I just put in enough work and I try hard enough, I can learn anything I need to learn to do anything I need to do. Short of playing professional basketball, <laughs> because I'm five foot nine and you know heavy. Uh, other than that, I, brain surgery. Give me enough time and enough training and enough support and enough help. I I believe I could figure it out. Um, and that's not being uh, what's the word I want to use um, conceited. I'm very humble. I realize that there's the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. But I believe if I pick something, I can work at it hard enough and long enough and learn enough and get enough people to help me that I will eventually succeed, even though I might be failing right now. 
Mm, I love that. I mean, uh, and at the end of the day, if, if somebody else has managed to do it, then obviously there's a path, there's something that we can model. Um, so I totally agree with you. Um, what was your biggest breakthrough moment over the last 22 years? I know you've touched on a couple of breakthroughs, but what would you consider was the biggest breakthrough in your business? When I learned that I didn't have to be right, that, and, and that oftentimes I wasn't right, that my job wasn't to tell people what to do or to fix things or to make people do it my way. Um, I heard a, uh, it was a sort of a, um, a phrase I heard many years ago that sort of changed things for me. I'm not a sage on the stage. I'm a guide on the side. And no matter how much I've learned and how much experience I've had and how many companies I've worked in and with CEOs, I realized that there's always another point of view and there's more than one right answer. And it's my, not my job to prove that I'm the smartest in the room or that my answer is the best. Or that I'm, it's my job to help people come up with the best answer and the best strategy and the best ideas that they can come up with together as a team, as partners, and that we both want the same thing, the exact right solution. When somebody hires me uh, and spends a fair amount of money to bring me in, I don't feel bad about the check they pay because they're seeing value, I see value, we're working as hard as we can to both to get to the same place where everybody's happy. They get a lot of uh, value. They get a high ROI. They're happy to spend the money. I'm there having fun. I'm doing everything I can to help. And if I just do that, everybody's going to be happy, and I'm going to get a happy client that brings me back over and over again. And I'm, it, I think one of my things that I look for in people that do what I do for a living is how often the clients bring you back. Uh, if you're, if you go in, you teach once and you never go back. You go in and give a speech and they never hire you again. To me, that's sort of a sign. And those sort of folks are out selling, 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 selling all the time because they go get no repeat business. Um, I have clients that sign me to five to seven year contracts and I've got clients I work with for 17 years straight and they bring me back every year because they, they know I'm going to read, study, learn and add value and do everything I can to help them not just stand in front of the room or at the conference table and tell them what to do. That's a huge testament to to what you're providing, sir. You know, congratulations on that. Um, Thank you, Davis. Yeah. Um, how do you rank the following? Slightly changing the tempo here, John. Faith, fun, family, finances, friendships. Wow, that's really really hard because they're all super intertwined. I mean, I I I don't think I could take uh, faith in in the way that I practice it and see it out of anything. Um, family to me is absolutely the most important thing. It's only my wife and I, we don't have kids, which was a decision we made because of the kind of business we're in. Traveling a couple hundred days a year would be, we believe it would have been completely unfair to have children whose father was never home. So we travel together, and, and that's a lifestyle choice. If it isn't fun, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I mean, just period, life is too short. So we have eight family fun friends. Um, I'm very very selective about the people I, I honestly believe are my friends. Um, I have a small group of, of really close friends. I have a lot of colleagues, a lot of contacts, a huge network, but I have a mastermind group of some of my closest friends, and those are folks I can count on two hands with a couple fingers left over. Uh, and then the last one was finances. And, and this is going to sound weird. I, I don't consider that a priority at all. Uh, it's not something I focus on in the least. I know if I do all the other stuff well, that will take care of itself. Something interesting is my wife negotiates all of our deals, and I have no idea how much I get paid per project. Um, she negotiates it out. I show up. I do the work. I'm sure her and the client have figured out a reasonable price that everybody's happy about, 
but I never ask what I'm getting paid, and I never worry about it because I'm going to do the same level of work regardless of what the paycheck is. So finances, you got to watch them and take care of them for yourself. But as far as making money goes, no, I think you add value and give value and build value, and the finance, the financial part of it takes care of itself. That's huge. That's uh, you've just said um, something fundamental, and you've backed it up by saying you know you you've got someone else negotiating that for you, and you actually just rock up and and deliver. So that's amazing. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, probably one of the few times I've heard that. So that's that's great. Let me tell you something else we do that I think is really neat. Um, I do get asked to give free speeches and free workshops and strategic planning retreats a lot by charities and nonprofits and, and small companies that can't afford me. And sometimes we say no because it just isn't a good match or I'm, I'm busy or traveling, but oftentimes you run into organizations that we really, really do want to help but can't afford my normal fee. So what we do is we tell them um, you've, got to, you've got to donate a minimum of $1,000 to charity. Um, and you can donate it to one of our charities that we believe in, or you can donate it to a charity you guys strongly believe in. But if you can't come up with a thousand bucks to donate to a charity, I can't show up to help you because if you don't value my time enough to do that, then you won't value me when I get there. Uh, and, and what that allows my wife and I to do is to give twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year to charity while we're helping people and doing stuff basically where I don't get paid. But, some, but there is value because they did have to pay something for me to show up there. Mm, that's amazing. That's great. John, um, give us a 30-second look into a day in your life when you started your business 22 years ago versus a day in your life today. Wow. Uh, a day in my life when I started my business 22 years ago was get up early uh, and just start prospecting, sending out letters, doing research, cold calling, um, working on stuff, and then when I would sell a, a, a speech or sell a workshop, I would then split my day to about 50% prospecting, 50% building content, reading, researching, studying, building workbooks, building slide decks, things like that. Uh, but early in my career, at least 50% of my time was on business development, marketing, business development, reaching out, uh, and then the other 50% on, was on building the best product I could humanly deliver so that people were beyond excited and would bring me back. Um, I did, I still do, and I, I did even more back then, uh, make sure that I got to the gym every day and worked out and ate healthy and took care of myself. Um, that was one of the ways to relieve the massive amount of stress I had when I started my business and was struggling financially. Uh, and that's pretty much what my days look like. And they went from about 8 in the morning till 10 at night. What about today? Today, I'm a little bit different. Um, I, Unless I'm on engagement, uh, and typically if I'm on engagement like I am here, I've got to get up at about 5 in the morning. Uh, I, I, I have a ritual of always going and getting a very healthy breakfast and reading uh, the news and Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur, Harvard Business Review, uh, all of those every morning. So I spend an hour every morning catching up on the news and catching up on the newest business ideas. Uh, and then on a typical day when I'm working, I will de usually deliver a morning keynote to maybe a thousand or two thousand people uh, after their breakfast, and or the first work, you know, as being the opening keynote. And then I might teach two or three workshops during the day, a couple hours each. And then I unwind by taking myself to a nice healthy dinner. 
uh, and maybe treating myself to a glass of wine. And then I go back to my room and check email, do that sort of stuff. And then I look at my slides and presentations and stuff for the next day. Uh, interestingly, my, I have other people that set my whole schedule for me. So I do not worry about what hotel I need to be, where I'm going, where the car is going to pick me up, what time I need to do stuff. I have a full travel pack that tells me exactly where I need to be, when, what I need to do, who I need to talk to, all that stuff. So I can remove all of that from my brain when I'm on business and focus and travel or focus totally on development, uh, delivering, keeping the client happy, and making sure I'm ready for the next day. On days that I'm not working, uh, like today, again, I get up morning ritual, read for an hour, or on a day like today, an hour and a half, two hours, and I just drink some iced tea or water while the, and let the nice person at the restaurant, at the hotel, take care of me. Then I come up and hit my to-do list for about four or five hours. Uh, and then today, around 2 o'clock, 2.30, I'll take myself to a museum, and I will walk there to get a little exercise. Uh, I walked about five miles yesterday uh, around the city going to museums. And then again, I'll pick some neat little restaurant that I've researched or the concierge has told me about and go get a nice light dinner, usually charcuterie, some um, meat and a little bit of cheese. Um, I, I usually have a glass of wine, but on trips like this, I will often decide that I'm not going to drink, so I'm on the road for about four weeks, and I'm not having any alcohol during this trip. And then I'll be in bed by 10 p.m. and back up by about 7 a.m. the next morning. Wow, that's great. Um, you got a, you got a good schedule down, Pat. I guess that, that helps you stay consistent with what you're doing. Um Let's talk about books uh, very quickly. I know we, we're running out of time, um, but you've written a number of books. Um, what, what would you say um, are great two books for entrepreneurs? Okay. Uh, um, for entrepreneurs, I've got one, and it's uh, The E-Myth. Have you read that one, David? Yeah, I've got it actually in front of me here. Yeah. <laughs> well, for an entrepreneur, it's apt to me it's essential because so many people start a business doing something they love, uh, but they're not interested in running a business. You know, I, I like to tinker with computers. I get a little bit better. My neighbors ask me to fix their computer. Uh, then I, I've got a couple of other people that come and offer to pay me to fix their computer. So I quit my job and I open up a computer repair shop and I'm really good at it and it grows and then I hire somebody and I hire somebody else and I look up one day and go, oh my gosh, I have 15 employees, payroll, marketing, taxes, you know, all this other stuff. I've got a business to run, and I never wanted to be in business. I just wanted to be a, a computer tech. I see so many entrepreneurs that do that and wake up one day and say, I have no desire whatsoever to, to run a business. I don't like business. I like the thing I do. So E-Myth is, is really, really good. I also like, um, especially now for entrepreneurs, is the new book by Vern Harnish, Scaling Up. Um, he wrote a book called The Rockefeller Habits, which I enjoyed very much. But scaling up is all about how do you take your business and 10 exit? What are the systems and the processes and, and the ways that you take a business from a million dollars to a hundred million dollars? And uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Mr. John Spence. Hope you had as much fun as I did. And more importantly, I hope you can get your hopes up that you are good enough to chase your dreams. Hey, what's up, Business Journalist family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Journalist podcast. Connect with me. 
at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.